welcome to the Leaders Edge podcast. I'm Sandy Laycox, Editor-in-Chief of Leaders Edge. In this episode, I sat down with two giants in the field of organizational development. Farzine Farzad, founder of Critical Equity Consulting, and Warren Wright, founder and CEO of Second Wave Learning. We discussed the concepts of inclusion and psychological safety, humanocracy, and the new demands of leadership. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I am here with Warren and Farzine. Thank you guys. I'm so excited to have you here. We are going to jump right in. You all just gave a really long session to our legislative summit group um, on all kinds of ways to sort of change your organization and make it more human-centered. So we're going to get into some of those ideas and concepts. Uh, We'll just go right ahead with defining what is a human-centered culture and then following that. Why is it important right now for us to be focused on that? Uh, So human-centered culture, I think, um, puts people first, right? So um, you're focused on the front end. Um, Obviously, you have obligations to your clients, right? Um, We're not saying to kind of diminish that, but as cultures shift over time, we've recognized that people want a more productive or positive experience in the workplace, right? Um, For the longest time, I think people have felt alienated from their jobs. They felt kind of uh, like almost harmed at times to the point where it's damaging, but also reduces engagement and then eventually reduces productivity and these kinds of things. So um, I think human centered literally just means putting people first, putting your employees first, putting your organization, uh, the contributors to your organization first and um and kind of uh, philosophically changing your outset, your mindset to, to focus on that primarily. I guess what I would add to that, you had asked uh, why now. Um, mm. In March of 2020, a giant reset button was pressed. And people were not only reevaluating where they work, home or office, when they work, um, how they work, but also why am I working? I mean, why, why am I here? And um, of course, there's been, you know, uh, uh, the great resignation and a lot of issues with the, with the labor markets. And what's happening from a macro standpoint is employees are having a greater voice into the decisions that are being made in organizations. And it, leaders need to have a sense and awareness of what is going on and how people are feeling about that. Uh, the companies that are going to be excelling, we think, in the next 10 years are the ones that really focus on this human-centered culture, that really value the individuals as contributors to the uh, outcomes and output of the organization through the people. So it's it's kind of like, and you're seeing union movements taking off, um, you're seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of employee power uh, type of um, initiatives. And so I think there's there's kind of a perfect storm. So it's COVID, it's the economy, it's all of these things coming together, and it's all pointing in the direction of, of human-centered organizations. So obviously there's a lot that probably goes into to creating that in your organization. And you all went through a lot of the sort of tenets of that. One of the major things you talked about was psychological safety. Mm-hmm. So can you discuss what that is a little bit and then what its effect is, both positive and negative, when you don't have it versus when you do on an organization? 
Sure. Yeah. So psychological safety um, is one of those concepts that kind of took off over the last few years. Um, a few people have contributed to the literature, mainly Tim Clark and Amy Edmondson, but it really, I think, took hold after the Project Aristotle report uh, by Google, which found uh, they, they did a survey of 180 of their teams and found out that like psychological safety was the number one determinant of uh, higher productivity, greater engagement and high performing teams. Right. So um, what it is, according to Tim Clark, is uh, he defines it as an environment of shared responsibility, uh, shared vulnerability. Right. And the idea is to create a environment where you're reducing the walls, um, you're able to kind of speak more freely, contribute um, effectively, have your opinions valued, have your input valued, and uh, hopefully adopted, you know, if it's, a, if it's a good idea. That's on one end. And on the other end, for you to be valued for who you are, your authentic self, your identity, right? So those are the two main sort of um, ideas of psychological safety. What I, who I am and what I contribute uh, are very, very important sort of core elements of the concept. Um, without it, I think uh, the opposite, exact opposite of a psychologically safe environment is a fear-based environment, right? So you're afraid to speak up, you're afraid to contribute. There may be times where an accident happens or is about to happen and you know the answer, but you've been so um, like shot down over however many you know years that you're reluctant, you're almost insecure to say something and that could change the outcome in the moment, right? Um, so it's a, it's a, a lot of it's just autonomy, being able to kind of uh, address the issues that need to be addressed in the moment. Without it, you have toxic environments, you have environments that promote um, uh, uh, microaggressions, biases, stereotypes, proliferate, all these things that uh, detract from these more open and honest environments. So uh, it's, it's, it's a very, very key ingredient of um, not only just positive performance, but also your experience in the workplace as well. You mentioned fear, and I want to ask about that a little bit more because you had some really interesting slides of philosophers that I know mm -hmm. talking about fear and decision-making. Can you talk about what happens when you have fear and decision-making? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, fear will stop you from contributing and being your authentic self, right? Um, so when, when you're fearful, uh, you go into a, a, a work environment. So if you're, if you're new to the environment, obviously for the first few weeks, it's always kind of that's the honeymoon period. You feel good. Everything's positive. Um, then you notice some things and some things, the practices uh, are a little off, some comments that are being made uh, that are off. And then you get these nudges of you shouldn't be you shouldn't be saying that like you have a place here and that's not for you to speak. Right. And then you it becomes an environment of fear, because if you do say something, there's going to be negative repercussions for that. Or if you do speak out on certain things, it's, there's going to be negative. And that interrupts the flow of uh, what uh, Tim Clark calls inter intellectual friction, which is the, the, te the positive tensions that exist where you're having interactions that result in very positive, synergistic, innovative ideas. So when you're in a fear-based environment, you feel insecure about who you are. Your, your, the, all of the identity spaces that you occupy from your race, gender, ethnicity, ability status, right, um, et cetera. And 
that means also that you're fearful to contribute effectively and contribute well beyond the bare minimum. Um, one of the great, uh, you know, in, in, in the book that we read um, or that we talked about uh, uh, a humanocracy, one of the uh, uh, quotes is that, you know, you're as a person, you're a Swiss army knife of all these different skills. Um, but in a fear-based environment, you're only using the scissors, for example, right? Or you're only using the saw or something like that. So um, it, it's very limiting on the individual uh, and it prevents a lot of uh, the positive interactions environmentally, but also to the contributor, to the you know employee. You know, there's, I was just going to mention there's an element of beyond fear, and that is the notion of, of shame. And, mm -hmm. and I don't know if you've all had a, a boss that always wanted to hear good news and never <laughs> wanted to hear bad news, right? So you just could not show up in the office and say, this is what's wrong, because that wasn't... So it's not like... It's, because the culture is telling you that you're not being positive, shame on you for not being positive. <laughs> yeah. And all you want to do is point something out that needs to be fixed. And you have an idea how to do that. But leadership is telling you that you're not positive. And so I think it shows up in different ways. It's not always just complete fear. It's, it's that there's a prevailing culture that you don't fit into and you are not being a team player. Mm -hmm because you're not going along with the, the sentiments of the uh, possibly delusional CEO. <laughs> That's where companies run into trouble. Have you, have you seen the show Succession at all? <laughs> Succession exactly is that. like the perfect show. And we should, <laughs> actually, we should it. show it's, that in our good. class. Oh my God, it's so good. Okay, so, I need to watch it. Oh yeah. Um, all right, so <clears throat> sticking with leadership a little bit, um, you guys showed a really interesting graphic demonstrating what people wanted from their leaders pre-COVID and post-COVID. It was like a word cloud. And what I noticed about the post-COVID word cloud were the words that had gotten bigger. Um, I wrote them down. So there was clarity, honesty, communication, certainty, truth. None of those words were nearly as big pre-COVID in the word cloud as they were. So to me, those are all words about needing to feel a certain way. Can you talk about that a little bit and what those words mean? Well, the research was fascinating. We, we happened to be doing research with, um, with a large, uh, with the World Bank. And we were, so in February, we went out and polled people, what was it? you know, tell me the words you associate with leadership that you want as a follower. What are you looking for in a leader? So in February of 2020, we asked the question and, and transparency, clarity, some of the ones that you mentioned came up. Um, we asked the question again, three weeks later after the great crisis in March, I guess we're coming up on an anniversary now of COVID. Sad. Um, and, and actually the word that came out the largest was empathy. So empathy didn't show empathy showed up, but it was like a real little word, you know, before, you know, spelled wrong, too, by the way. So um, I don't know what happened, but people just. But, but anyways, but at, but after COVID, people were feeling really vulnerable and they're feeling very unmoored and they're feeling very much like, what do I do now? Where do I go? Is anyone going to listen to me? What I want for my leader is 
just someone who cares, mm. someone who has empathy. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know if the business is going to be around. I don't know. You know, remember, I mean, go back to that time and how we felt at that time. We didn't know what was going on and what was going to happen. And so I think this notion of empathy really embodies and fits in very nicely to the model of human-centered organization. Because in human-centered organizations, we're practicing empathy every day. This is, this is kind of who we are and what we do and how we operate. And so that way, and, that, and the beautiful thing about that, and, and the, the thing I love, you know, I, I worked for Gallup for 10 years, and we always said, if you want, George Gallup always said, if you want to know the will of the people, just ask them, right? So asking questions and getting answers from people is important. And so when you're asking people what's important to them, that's what they're telling you. It's not what leaders and academics are telling you. It's what the people are telling you is important. And empathy is one of those things that came up really, really highly. So I have to tell you, when I was an undergraduate history major, we, as a history major, you had to learn how to read Gallup polls. Like that was the first thing oh, that God they, bless they you. took you to the library <laughs> and they showed you where they all were. And they were like, this is how you do your research. This is how you learn about what happened in the past and what people thought about it. So yeah, I agree yeah. With I'm, I'm wonderful to hear that. Thank you for that. <laughs> that was but when the internet was just starting. So there was right, just right, still paper. right. Well, George Gallup, George Gallup started the company in the '30s, so we've been yeah been around a lot longer than that. But um, but I think but I think the fundamentals of that are is is you're opening your ears and you're listening to what people are saying, and that's what came out of this. Um, uh, the, some more research that we did actually on what are the key things that people around the world want in a leader in time in difficult times and times of crisis and there was four things that really emerged compassion stability trust and hope and um any context any country wherever you are in the world those things come up the top four and it's just fascinating to me that there's all these academic models of what a leader should be well why don't you actually go to the followers and ask them Right. what they want and what they're interested in and what resonates with them so they could get on with their work and do their job on your behalf, right? Okay, so let's talk about being a manager versus a leader. You guys had some interesting points. Talk about the distinction. Yeah, a man. well, there's a saying, you know, a manager does things right and a leader does the right things. And what's really meant by that is that um, a manager... Um, is is working on 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 the details of, of of a project. They're making sure that you know the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. They're making sure that the team is assembled and everybody is aligned towards a mission. A leader is leadership today is more of an embodiment of your authentic self and who you are. And I know that sounds kind of wacky, and we could get into that. But when you actually uh, talk to some of the top quote leaders, uh, like um, Oh, Microsoft CEO. I'm drawing a blank. Okay. No. No longer. Oh. Oh, Price. Current, oh. Tim. No. Tim Cook. No, Tim Cook is Apple. Is Apple. <laughs> I'm no. confusing all uh, the no, tech It's giants. actually Satya Satya Nadell. Yeah. yeah. Satya Nadell has uh, increased the market capitalization of Microsoft uh, billions and billions of dollars, and he will tell you. And you ask him why. What he'll say is, "We've moved from a know-it-all." organization to a learn-it-all organization. We've learned to be humble. I don't know if you remember, but the CEO was not a humble guy, Steve Ballmer, after, after Bill Gates, right? It was all about, like, I got these ideas, we're going to plow it through. And I think with Satya Nadella, he's like, hmm, let's pause. Let's ask 
how people want to develop a product or serve the client. Um, I don't know. I'm the CEO. How should I know? You know, I have to rely on my front line to do that. And so in an environment that has psychological safety, it, it's just, it allows for that to happen. It's the facilitation um, thing that allows for that to happen. Yeah. And the only thing um, kind of uh, I'll add to that is like uh, the, the manager is like a very hard firm set codified role, right? Like um, what we're, what we're seeing now is that um, when it comes to creating, you know, if, if leadership is the role, they're creating opportunities for other people to step up and lead in certain things, right? So it's never, it's never, um, you know, this sort of rigid stratification of different uh, kind of uh, roles that go up the chain. The future organization is much more distributed. Power is diffused. It can be culturally or it can be actually structurally, you know, as we go into self-management. But I think people want to step up. They want to take on projects. You know, they want to use their ex uh, expertise and experience in ways that um, is off has been quite limiting in, in organizations of the past. Um, and people get uh, enjoy uh, kind of doing that. And it's better for the organization because it leads to more productive, innovative outcomes. Right. So um, I think leadership is much more dynamic. It can be situational. Right. You can take leadership in a uh, in a particular position. Um, I used to, you know, work in uh, local government, and there were times when um, the decision makers were the frontline uh, staff. When a water main broke, for example, down power line, they knew what to do because they were directly um, interfacing with uh, the problem. And uh, because of their experience, they were able to kind of take, you know, um, some degree of authority, but also keep it open so that ideas are flowing. How do we address this kind of thing? So. Um, I, I think like as we as we progress, um, these social these social stratas uh, are sort of breaking um, and uh, we're allowing people to just uh, organically kind of enter these uh, situations where they can use their expertise, knowledge um, and ability to lead uh, to define outcomes. So I think, you know, it's leadership. The concept of leadership itself is changing as well. Okay. As, as an effective leader, you, you talked a lot about effective conversations, how to have effective conversations. So how, how do we have them? Well, I guess I would say that just go in, if you're a leader or if you're a position of authority or power in a conversation, you're the one that should be talking probably 20% of the time. And the other person 80% of the time. And so it's good to kind of have that frame of reference. Um, we like to say that your new role is a listener in chief as, as a leader, um, you're the chief listener. And so it's your job to figure out kind of what's on people's minds and what's going on. And of course, if it's not a psychologically safe environment, people aren't gonna talk, right? So you have to kind of lay the groundwork for that. Uh, but I would say that, um, yeah, I would, I, I, I'm a fan of, of, of listening. I think it, um, I think it's a great, it's a great tool. It's probably the best tool that leaders have to move an organization forward. Can I add to that? Yeah, and uh, I mean, there's some a few kind of strategies um, to kind of think about when you're going into conversations that may or may not be determined as difficult. Uh, it can lead from anything to, um, you know, talking with somebody about 
work performance to something more serious, something outside of work, right? We're having these conversations in the workplace because they affect the, we don't operate in a closed system, right? You're a part of society, your organization's a part of society, it's all connected, right? Um, so, I mean, a few things to think about when you're going into these conversations is recognizing one for me, I think is uh, uh, fundamentally important is recognizing the power you hold in the situation. Like, is it a leadership, uh, you know, direct report dynamic? Is it a lateral? Like, are you talking uh, as a colleague? Um, second thing I think is uh, super important is to come, come at the conversation in, you know, in good faith, right? Um, we're not, you know, act, part of active listening is that you're actually deeply listening to the individual, not waiting to, you know, cue up a response when, when they say something to negate it, right? Um, that person's speaking to something real to them. They're going to have, uh, they're going to put their soul into it. That must be respected. Um, other things like, you know, uh, be mindful of the kinds of things you say and the impacts that they uh, elicit. So. Um, one of the, the things that I like to say is, um, uh, you know, assume good, good intent in the conversation, but own the impact of it, right? If you do say something unintentionally problematic, um, it's your responsibility to take, you know, apologize or bring the, like you're, you're, you hold the power in that situation. So it's your responsibility. So, um, it actually, like, it really depends on the type of conversation. It depends on. Um, what kind of trauma responses kind of uh, come out when when things are brought up? Um, conversations are, are those things that like you can learn some strategies, right? And you can learn some how tos, but unless you fundamentally shift your mind in in how you're going about it, um, you're not gonna. It's not gonna be effective. Like you're not gonna use your own words. It's not gonna feel right. It's not gonna feel organic. Um, but when you have this like uh, mindset of a positive experience that we're trying to go at this to get something positive out of this, we're not we're not butting heads, right? We want to break down walls um, and get to the, to reality here. Um, that leads to more positive outcomes. And, and I'm a big proponent of that kind of philosophical shift as opposed to I'm going to give you some surface level how to things that you know you may sound like a robot, but whatever you know. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so one of the things that really stuck with me when you were talking about um, effective conversations was you said you have to accept someone's truth in the moment. Can you explain what that means? Sure. So um, somebody's reality. So <laughs> <clears throat> can you explain? It? <laughs> uh, There's also a philosophy. Meeting. I was going to say it like <laughs> uh, delves into like uh, uh, cognitive like, you know, psych psychology and even uh, some uh, some hard science. So like, um, but fundamentally, there's no, like nobody perceives ob reality objectively, right? The things that people experience, they experience through their, like they can experience it through their, ex like their past experience, but they can experience it through their parents, through their ancestors, Right. So certain types of comments, for example, elicit traumas that are centuries old. Right. Um, one of the one of the uh, examples that I typically use is that, you know, when you levy a microaggression around laziness, um, you can trace that directly to 
that comment being used for enslaved peoples 400 years ago, right? This comment has uh, morphed over time and endured itself. It's about extracting as much lab human labor as, hum as possible and putting that person in a situation where they feel harmed and, uh, and that kind of thing. So, um, so that means when somebody experiences something, their response is typically born out of something real. It's not just, um, uh, you know, that's, oh, that, you know, they're being this way or they're being that way. So it's their truth, right? And that needs to be respected. We don't know everything that led up to this person reacting in this way or this person saying this thing. So we should assume that this, uh, that, you know, when somebody says something that, hey, I've been harmed or, or um, uh, you know, some, somebody said something problematic or uh, did something problematic in the workplace, we can't just, like, we, our, our automatic respo like, uh, response sometimes, especially if we're in a position of power, is like, oh, yeah, they didn't mean that or that's not real or that kind of thing. But it's true to them. They experienced it, right? They, people just don't react to react for the sake of reacting. People react because something has happened in the past that led to this point. Right. So it's a truth. It's it's true to them. And that needs to be respected. And like I said, there is no like you can't you can't fact based argue with somebody who has had a traumatic experience. Right. You can't be like, oh, that didn't happen because X, Y and Z. And somebody look at you like you weren't there. You know, you didn't experience this. You don't know my past. You don't know, uh, you know, where where I've come from, what I've had to go through why this is so deeply hurtful to me, that kind of thing. So recognize that when people have the bravery and courage to tell you that, hey, this is problematic, that it comes from a very real place and it's true to them. Okay. You also talked about bias, which we've talked about a little bit. Um, and then you talked about interrupting your bias. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how you do that. Sure. Um, so two ways that I put, pointed that out was uh, was to uh, either challenge or reframe. Um, so to back up a little bit, I, I think uh, one of the things that I, I definitely wanted to highlight um, in, in the conversation was that we've, we've all been through the bias training. We know that everybody has biases. Okay. That's like nothing novel. It's like saying everybody has a brain. We all recognize patterns. Good. Right. So that's... That's human cognition. Um, power is a very important missing ingredient to that conversation around bias. The more power you give an individual in the workplace, the more rigid these systems are, the bureaucratic where ultimate decision-making is at the top, it's fear-based, all these things. Um, you're also giving a lot of power to this, that individual's biases as well. So that individual has a lot of responsibility to check their own biases. I gave some examples of how to do that, which I'll get to in a second. But what's much more um, beneficial is if there's a group using a collective mind to check one another's biases and recognizing, hey, that may be a problem. You know, that may lead to this. We're missing this. Who's benefiting? Who's being left out of this conversation um, with the with with a team? That's why we're trying. That's what we're talking about: psychological safety, so we can open it up to the conversations, have a free, free flow of information. But what if you're in that position where you're making a decision and, and, and you know, you want to make sure that you make the least biased decision as humanly possible? There's two ways of doing it. Challenging uh, that, I, that I propose 
challenging, which is basically completely negating that um, information that's going to lead to that bias through new information, right? I look up the facts. This isn't true at all, right? I, why would I make this decision in this way if the facts don't uh, prove that way? So the other way is like uh, uh, before it gets to a bias, it's rooted in stereotypes. The other way is like switching that on its head. So something that may be perceived negatively, you can view it as a positive, right? If somebody um, is very loud uh, or comes off as what you would perceive as aggressive in the interview, um, are they really that way or are your biases taking hold? If it was somebody else, would you view them as passionate? Would you view them as like really interested in the job, right? So um, it takes, it takes uh, your ability to kind of slow down, use your, uh, uh, your two, there's two types of cognition, your fast brain and your slow brain. Your fast brain tends to, uh, is where the biases really take hold. Your slow brain is when you slow down and then kind of think it through. It's like, why am I thinking this way? Is it rooted in anything real? Is it rooted in any objective criteria? Um, and so that's the, that's the challenging and reframing that, you know, we proposed. Okay. So a lot of this has been around what leaders can do and, and how to create this kind of new organization. What if you are not a leader, you don't have a position of power, and you are a bystander to some sort of bad behavior in an organization? What can you do? Yeah, bystander. Oh, good timing. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> So the question was about an individual behavior uh, mm -hmm. that you notice in it. Yeah. So um, one of the things we talked about was uh, like uh, methods of bystander intervention. If you witness something um, problematic being said or done, um, how do you be an effective ally? How do you show up for your colleagues? Um, there's a lot of methodology behind this, but there's a few simple things like you definitely want to make sure that it stops. Right. That's how you create a culture of accountability. Um, you can, you can do that in the moment. If you'll, if you feel comfortable, if you're, you know, your threat perception is in a place where I can do this. Right. Um, or you can do it after the moment, talk to that uh, individual who's levied that comment, problematic comment and say, Hey, that's not cool or whatever. So in the moment there's, uh, uh, you can, uh, the, the framework for the bystander intervention is the four D's, um, direct, deflect, delegate, and, uh, disarm. Uh, disarming is basically, you know, you intervening, you kind of show up and you ask for some clarification. Maybe they said something problematic that they didn't really intend to. And you ask a very like neutral question like, oh, yeah, can you elaborate that? What do you mean by that? That kind of thing. But not as but kind of on a softer level. Deflecting is basically um, changing the subject, you know something new just to kind of interrupt it at that moment. So that person who's being harmed kind of takes a breath a minute, right? Um, deflecting, uh, did I say deflect? Disarm is, uh, no, disarm, deflect. Direct is when you uh, directly confront that individual and tell that individual that, you know, what you've said was highly problematic. This is the reasons why, right? Um, and you can use a call in approach as opposed to calling them out, like, you know, bring the person into a conversation rather than going at it very aggressively, which may come back and harm you, actually. Um, 
So, and then like, uh, there's methodology after the moment, you know, show up for your colleague, right? You stand up for them. You invite the, uh, the person who, uh, levied the comment, the person, the person responsible is what they call it. You go to the person responsible and say, Hey, you know, I, I heard you say this. Um, that's not, uh, that's not, you know, positive conducive to positive. I mean, in your own words, I'm not like, obviously, but that's not cool. Like that, let me tell you why. You call them into a conversation and then you ask for a change, right? I think, uh, you know, I would like it if I don't have to witness that because as a, as a bystander, as a witness too, you, you may be being harmed as well, right? So you have a stake into it, right? You're a stakeholder. So um, these are methodologies, but the idea is interrupt the behavior, interrupt the comment in the moment or after, it doesn't matter, but make sure that we're kind of creating an environment where we're holding each other accountable to um, at minimum stop harm from perpetuating, right? Obviously you wanna get into psychological safety, which is on the positive end, right? It's like creating more positive work environments, but psychological safety is really eroded when you have these negative behaviors like microaggressions that perpetuate in the workplace. So you both have a wealth of knowledge on this topic, and I'm sure that we could sit here for a really long time and talk about it. But I would love, so this is probably gonna be really hard for you, but I would love to hear from each of you sort of, if there's one takeaway um, as, as a leader or someone in an organization who wants to promote a more human-centered culture, um, one thing to think about from Warren, let's start with you. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I would say that um, humility and being humble is the new, you know, sincerity is the new sarcasm, they say, you know, in entertainment, right? We've kind of gone from, you know, David Letterman sarcasm to, you know, the, the Ted Lasso sincerity, right? But I do, th so, but I do think that, um, it had been kind of an expectation uh, in the 80s and the 90s that leaders were tough. They were hard scrabble. They sometimes say, you know, Jack Welsh, we got to fire people to get stuff done, <laughs> you know, and it was just and that was what leadership was. Right. There was this very kind of machismo and paternalistic. I mean, you name it. Right. It was all these things. And I think we've seen and expect a lot of us through enculturation and indoctrination and media media, that that's what leadership is. Whereas what the research shows and what literature shows and Aristotle talked about a very long time ago was that wisdom comes from knowing what you don't know and asking questions. And good leaders are um, have humility, they're humble, and they're curious. And so I would say that would be, those are kind of the core, core elements of what makes a great leader today? Yeah, I think I think mine's very similar. Um, the I guess the only thing I'll say is that, and I, this is something that I readily talk about, um, that I make sure that I, you know, it's one of the first things I always talk about is the recognition of uh, the power you hold in every space you're in, right? Whether that that power is unearned, societally, you know, bestowed upon you. Or it's uh, it's the power of your role, or it's the power of your charisma, um, it's the power of your ability to speak. Like, are you hogging up the room? That kind of thing. Um, 
So always like always in, in any situation kind of assess the power that you hold and are you are you drawing it in, concentrating it within yourself or are you empowering it or even diffusing that power? Right? That's what great leadership is. Great leadership is not hoarding power. Great leadership is kind of is creating environments where you're taking on the role of the person that's going to carve out a room for safety and positive dialogue and, and good, you know, conversations that lead to positive outcomes and innovation, that kind of thing. So um, power is important. I think it doesn't get as much um, uh, imp like importance in, 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 these, um, in these discussions and not only just interrogating your power, but structurally interrogating how power is distributed throughout your organization. Are you allowing for people to you know, step up and be real leaders in, in the situations that they they know about, right? So, uh, yeah, it's all about power relations for me. <laughs> well, you know, this has been really insightful and I personally have learned a lot, so I appreciate it and I love chatting with you. So thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for having Thanks, me. Thanks, Andy. That was Farzeen Farzad and Warren Wright. Thanks for listening. For more Leaders Edge podcasts, go to leadersedge.com. Mm -hmm.